Hi, I'm your host, Dave Kemp, and this is Future Ear Radio. Each episode, we're breaking down one new thing, one cool new finding that's happening in the world of hearables, the world of voice technology. How are these worlds starting to intersect? How are these worlds starting to collide? What cool things are going to come from this intersection of technology? Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Okay, so we have an awesome episode today. We are joined here by three great guests. I am joined by Kevin Lieby, Jackie Scholl, and Dr. David Eagleman. So why don't we go one by one, introduce ourselves, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do, starting with you, Jackie, ladies first. Oh, thank you, Dave. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. Um, I am an audiologist. Um, This is a second career for me. And I was in private practice. I worked in ENTs, primarily focused in cochlear implants. Um, I had my own practice for about 12 years and I sold it, oh, about a year and a half ago. So I'm um, working primarily with my daughter, who is uh, 13 now, Dave if you can believe that. And um, she is deaf. And we adopted her from China when she was five and a half years old. She had never heard a sound. Um, She had, she had no language. Um, And unbeknownst to me, um, I, I thought she had a mild to moderate hearing loss. um, But actually, Jade is the deafest patient I've ever had in my life. She has, um, um, neuroplasticity, or she has neuroplastic eighth auditory nerves, um, the right worse than the left. So, but she hears with two cochlear implants at, uh, she has full access and she's learning to read and speak and do all the things that, and sass. She's 13. I did tell you that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Thanks, having, thanks for being here, Jackie. Uh, Kevin. Yeah, uh, Dave, thanks. This, I think, is the second time I've been on the podcast. So, Thank you for having me back. Um, I'm also uh, an audiologist uh, about last 12 years or so, um, uh, mostly in private practice, but um, I did spend about four years on the industry side of things. So I've kind of had a pretty good mix of ENT, private practice, hospital, kind of a a broad spectrum of, um, you know, patient experience, but also a lot of people know me through uh, Hearing Health and Technology Matters, which is the website that that I do own. And uh, it's kind of uh, opened the doors to a lot of interesting opportunities, which is kind of how I came to meet David Eagleman, I know who's going to introduce himself next and, uh, and learn about the buzz, which I think is a, is a pretty cool technology. So, um, yeah. And, uh, again, I, that, I guess that's about it. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for being here, Kevin. And last but not least, David Eagleman. Uh, Hey Dave and uh, Kevin and Jackie. So yeah, I'm a neuroscientist at Stanford and I run a company called Neosensory and for many years, I've been studying um, how signals can get to the brain and how we might push signals to the brain otherwise, and especially in non-invasive manners. And so that's how I ended up spinning off this company, uh, which, we'll, which we'll talk about. Beautiful. Well, if you can't discern already, um, this conversation is going to largely pertain to a lot of David's work um, with his company, Neosensory. 
He's also written a book uh, called Live Wired, which is, um, you know, basically detailing a lot of the science that goes into the buzz and around sensory substitution. So I figure, you know, between the the four of us, uh, having Kevin to kind of provide his clinician's perspective and Jackie, not only as an audiologist and providing that perspective, but as a a mother of a deaf child um, who has been using the buzz, I think she would have a, a really good perspective on this as well. So why don't we kick things off, David, and share a little bit about LiveWired, um, maybe even the definition of what that means and uh, how it might be a little bit more suitable than, say, neuroplasticity, and and ultimately um, the, the basis of this book and some of the key takeaways from it. Okay, great. So yeah, so LiveWired is my eighth book, and the reason I wrote this is because, you know, when you learn about the brain, we, we tend to learn about this as a static system like okay here's the visual part of the brain here's the hearing part the touch and so on but in fact the whole system is extremely dynamic and is always uh moving around and learning and every memory you have uh, and every new skill you learn and so on represents this this change in the brain now this is technically in the field we call this neuroplasticity um i happen to not be that impressed with the word plastic because it was coined 100 years ago to represent the way that we can mold this material plastic into place and it will hold that shape but in fact um you know you've got 86 billion neurons in the brain that are constantly moving and shifting and changing every second of your life and so it's a much larger concept than plasticity so that's why i coined the term live wiring but that, that the detail doesn't matter. It's all about the flexibility of the brain. And one of the things that really got my attention starting about 15 years ago was this issue of sensory substitution, which is this idea of, you know, look, we've got eyes and ears and nose and mouth and so on. And we're used to these sensory devices. But of course, what these are all doing is turning information from the outside world into spikes in the darkness of our brain. And the, the question is, could you get those spikes in there through a different unusual channel? And so the idea of sensory substitution is that you take something, let's say like hearing, and instead of pushing it in through the ears, could you get that same content in some other way? So that's what I ended up building in my lab as a device. We originally built this as a vest that's covered in vibratory motors and it captures sound and it turns that sound into patterns of vibration on the skin. So it's essentially doing exactly what the inner ear does, the cochlea. It's breaking up sound from high to low frequency and then putting that on different spatial locations on the torso. And we, uh, I ended up um, getting venture capital funding for this and spun this off as a company called Neo Sensory. And, uh, and under the aegis of that company, we shrunk this down to a wristband. So it's like a, a Fitbit size device and it captures sound. It has a very sophisticated processing chip on it and it, it breaks it up into frequencies from low to high. And so you're feeling these vibrations on your skin. Now, the question is, could a person who is deaf come to understand what's happening in the auditory world via vibrations on the skin? And the answer is yes, it works because people, because it doesn't matter how the information gets up to the brain. The brain looks for things that are relevant. It looks for correlations in the world. So if you see the dog's mouth moving and you feel the barking on your skin, your brain puts that together. And I think the way to, to understand this is, you know, you didn't know how to use your ears as a baby. Um, you're born into the world and you figure it out. You, you, you watch your mother's mouth moving. You're getting signals in your ears. 
and you put these things together and eventually you get good at understanding how to, how to interpret auditory data and what to make of it. And of course, what quickly happens is that you don't think, oh, I'm hearing Eagleman's voice and I'm hearing some high frequency and some low frequency. And some Instead, you just feel like you hear my voice. And that's the same thing that happens with people wearing this wristband called Buzz is that, uh, you know, on day one, they're actually better than chance at understanding particular and being able to identify sounds. So we present a sound to the wristband and we say, hey, was that a, a doorbell or a dog barking? And they make their best guess. And then we, we present another sound. We say, okay, was that a car passing or a, a fire alarm or whatever? And we do lots of these tests. And it turns out that people are pretty good on day one at being able to understand the sounds of the world through their wrist. But as time goes on, they get better and better at it. And so the key thing, to my mind, the key thing about this is it's, um, you know, totally non-invasive. You're just putting it on like a Fitbit and, um, and it's, uh, it's inexpensive. It's, you know, a fraction of the price of a hearing aid and a small fraction of the price of a cochlear implant. And so um, this, is, this is what we're doing with Buzz. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when I was reading your book, uh, what I really appreciated was some of the different um, analogies and, and just comparisons that you make to nature. So you draw a lot of different animals and the ways that they sort of naturally evolved uh, to, you know, the way in which a mole, for example, sees the world is through all of its little fingers. And and so that's how it, you know, in a bat with, with sonar. And so um, I find this really interesting. You had a quote in your book where you said, um, you know, the, your brain is locked in a vault of darkness and silence and all it ever sees are electrochemical signals. And so I find this to be really interesting because, um, you know, I think as somebody that isn't super familiar with the world of neuroscience, um, I just, you sort of assume that the reason that you hear the way that you do, or the way that you see the world, the way that you do is just, you know, that's just the way that it is. But in reality, it's an, it's a natural evolution. And, and so it, there isn't necessarily a reason as to why, um, other than through an evolution, evolutionary standpoint as to why our eyes operate the way that they do, because in, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you can effectively get those same chemical, um, you know, uh, reactions in your brain to happen through your different senses. Is that right? That's exactly right. And so, yeah. And so the reason we chose touch um, is because your skin is actually the largest organ of your body, but it goes completely wasted nowadays. In modern life, we're not using our skin for much of anything, and uh, but we can actually push a lot of information into that. And so that's why we chose that. And, and as I said, we started with this vest because you can push a lot of information through the torso, but it turns out nobody wants to wear a vest around um, even under their clothing. And so that's why we ended up with this thing that looks like a Fitbit, which is really convenient. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to ask about this too. So, um, you know, with the, the form factor that you're using now, um, when you did initially develop the vest was part of that because of the limitations of technology at the time. And here we are in 2021. And so that you can pack more into a wearable device today. And um, I'm curious of where your thinking is as to, you know, a year or two from now, is that going to present even more opportunities? Can you, will you be able to do even more with a Fitbit sized device that, five, six years ago was previously unimaginable given the constraints of the technology? Yeah, that's exactly right. As tech gets better, we're looking at different ways of passing this information in. Right now we have what are called linear resonant actuators, which are these vibratory motors. It's the same thing that buzzes in your cell phone. Um, but there are new technologies coming out 
where it's like um, a strip of little bubbles, essentially, that are getting filled with air. And these are even more rapid and you can feel these and you can fit more on there. Um, one of the things that we, you know, measure and keep careful track of is what's called two-point discrimination, which is, can your skin distinguish two different points on the skin and different parts of the body have different thresholds for how far apart the things need to be. But what we're doing nowadays is we're using, uh, we're using haptic illusions. In other words, illusions of touch that allow us to get even more information in there. So just as an example, if I turn on two of these motors that are right next to each other, you'll actually feel a virtual single point in the middle. And as I change the amplitude of these two motors, I can move that little virtual point around. So we can actually hit a lot of very fine specific points, even, even with the technology we have, but yes, it's only getting better. Yeah. Because I think that what's so interesting about this is, you know, um, this idea of live wiring, rewiring your brain to create this new sense more or less. And what I'm curious about is, get with say the buzz and and I'm going to be really curious to get some of Jackie's input here too as her daughter wears this um is how long typically does it take for that to occur where because I know in your book you mentioned that with young children for example their brains are maybe more malleable and they're easier to uh they just you know sort of rewire at an even quicker pace but um for say an adult who has been um that was born deaf or you know is profoundly uh, hearing impaired, if they were to be given this device, how long would it take for their brain to start to naturally um, perceive what signals are being communicated through either the vest or the wrist-worn buzz? Yeah, I'll just say um, we've done studies on this and the younger you are, the faster you can learn on it. Um, but that said, you know, even people in their 60s and 70s can, can learn this. It just takes a little bit longer. Um, it also has to do with how much you're out in the world. So if you're running around and seeing things and looking at stuff happening and feeling it on the buzz, it, it happens faster. Um, the real, so, so uh, there's, there's two things I should mention. One is that um, the improvement goes up linearly with time. And the reason I mentioned that little detail is because there are some tasks that you can learn where there's a sudden jump instead of a linear progression. And that indicates that there's some conscious aha moment. But in our case, it's not a conscious thing. It's that your brain is actually learning better and better how to interpret these signals, presumably just the same way your ears did when you were a baby. And the second thing I was going to mention, the main thing is there's what we have found is that at about three months, three or four months, there's a change that happens where people start perceiving this consciously. So in other words, it's not that they're feeling stuff on the wrist and translating it and saying, oh yeah, that's a dog bark or that's a lawnmower, that's a doorbell, that's a microwave beeping. But instead, they're just having what is called a qualia, where it's this subjective internal experience, just the way that your ears say, oh, I'm just having an experience of the dog barking. I'm not, I'm not translating this thing. It's the same thing where, uh, you know, so I've interviewed people who've been wearing the buzz for a long time. And I say, okay, look, when you hear, let's say the dog bark, do you, do you feel a buzz on your wrist? And then you think, okay, that was, what was that? Was that a dog? Bark? They say, no, no, I'm just hearing the dog bark. And that's as, cr as crazy as that is, it's precisely what we'd expect because that's how all of our organs work. Your brain works to extract patterns and eventually make a, just a private subjective experience for you which is how like Braille works too, right? 
That's right. When, when you watch a person reading a novel in Braille, you know, they laugh, they cry, they have tears running down their cheeks. It doesn't matter that the information is getting in there via bumps on the skin. All that matters to them is the content of it. Yeah. Yeah. So Jackie, I'm going to kick it over to you here. Um, as a mother of a child, uh, Jade, who, who's using this, um, what's been your experience like? What's been your child's experience like? Uh, very curious to hear about this. Sure. Well, um, keep in mind, Jade's not your typical um, cochlear implant recipient. Um, she was very late, you know, five and a half, never having sound. Um <laughs> having hypoplastic nerves on top of that. Um, but we moved mountains for her. She, um, she has completely full access with her cochlear implants. She has a custom made device from the company, um, which actually is triphasic pulse stem versus biphasic, which allows us to give her more without facial stem. So um, she's very unique in that she does a lot of stuff that, um, anyone ever anticipated her being able to do, let alone a kid with um, hypoplasticity. But um, when we got the buzz, um, what was, what's been really, really interesting is the first thing that I noticed, and I, you know, I have to tell you, I just put it on her. I didn't, I, I didn't know, actually, I didn't know until recently that I could turn the mics down a little bit. Um, she's probably been getting over <laughs> with dogs and stuff, but, um, she, um, what the, the thing I noticed first was, you know, even though she has two cochlear implants, she hears at, um, you know, hears at normal levels. Um, she doesn't hear, you know, if you're behind her and you say, Jade, let's say we're in the grocery store, Jade, Jade. Um, you know, sometimes I have to like actually go up and, but immediately when with with the buzz um she feels it before i think she hears it sometimes or before she notices that she hears it so i get much faster responses from her because it's like oh and i and like you you said david i don't know that she's consciously um saying i feel that she's it's just it's signaling her quicker than what she's getting with and for the mother of a child who's very deaf um wow that's pretty um safety is a huge i mean these you think about our people who are deaf and hard of hearing and how very vulnerable they are to any kind of um you know attacks or um kidnap you know, all of that stuff that we we're scared about as parents um that was the first thing i noticed the second thing and 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 one of the things that we've worked tirelessly on is speech. Um, speech, 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 speech is important. Um, and language. I, I don't mean to say one without the other. Uh, we do sign support and we talk because that's what Jade wants. I, you know, one thing I'll tell you is, you know, kids know what they want and that's what they're going to do, but you can't always understand her because everything has one syllable. So with Buzz, um, it has been a particularly fascinating thing that we're able to do because we'll like, I'll, I'll hold it too. And I'll go baseball. There's two syllables, baseball. Can you, do you, do you feel it? It's, it's, it's two. And so we're really, her language development in the last month 
has just shot off the charts. I just had a conference with her. Um, she does one-on-one -on -one language, um, like literally 30 minutes before this. And they're like, wow, it's like crazy. And to voice. And if, if we're trying to get her to voice versus, you know, the cough, it's, it's a much stronger feeling, right? David, you've designed it to, um, yeah. Yes, exactly right. And, and so we can, so what we try and do is say, this is how it feels and sounds. Uh, and then she has to try and make that feel the same way. It's that's, been amazing. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's been really, um, I have to tell you, David and Dave and Kevin, <laughs> everyone, I am really thrilled um, for our children who, especially our children who have um, hypoplasticity, um, there have been very few options for them. Most, most places would not have implanted Jade. Um, me being in the community, I had kind of a special, you know, a special uh, case, but um, this on top of that is, is really, I think it's a game changer for those kids. Thank you, David. I thank you. I'm so glad that's working. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that what's fascinating is I knew that the there were a lot of opportunities around the alerting features, like you mentioned at the beginning, you know, you're at the grocery store, Jade, Jade, and, you know, so she can feel that there's, you know, somebody behind them trying to communicate. But I do find this whole notion of, you know, her having to sort of um, mimic the the sound around her and almost harmonize it so that she can see, okay, this is the way that it sounds from a speech discrimination standpoint and uh, just like the ability to discriminate between, like, I remember you told me earlier, uh, Jackie, about like avocado, yeah. like she didn't, she, she wasn't able to ever really register with her that that was a four syllable word, but now that she can feel it. And so that to me is um, where the bigger opportunity is here. And um, I, I'm curious from you, David, when you hear this, I mean, is this, is this the bigger picture? Is this a good, um, I guess, again, going back to LiveWired, I mean, is this a, a representation of, you know, if, if these are like, she's getting these reports that she's, her ability to decipher speech is just going up and up and up. Is that in large part due to the rewiring in her brain that's sort of happening as a, a byproduct of the experience of wearing something like this? That's exactly right. I mean, everything is about input and output and making these cycles of feedback. So obviously <clears throat> the reason that we are able to articulate and figure out how to speak is because we're hearing it and babies go through a long babbling phase where they're trying things out and getting feedback and some utterances get a big smile from their mother and others get a look of confusion. And yeah, this is how you figure out language. Um, but you need that feedback loop to get established. And that's why it's so unbelievably useful when you have an inexpensive thing you can strap on and then you get that. Yeah. And so kicking it over to you now, Kevin, um, as not only a clinician, but also somebody that is very immersed in this industry, um, you know, with hearing health that matters, you cover a lot of the emerging technologies that's going yeah. on. And I feel like you have probably one of the best fingers on the pulse of the state of the industry and, and just the wide variety of professionals that uh, encompass it. And so how do you see from a um, just from a business standpoint, how do you see this as being, you know, applied in hearing health, broadly speaking? 
Yeah. And thanks, Dave. And, and gosh, Jackie, that's, I mean, that's incredible. I mean, I've heard that third hand from Dave, uh, uh, you know, the, the story about your daughter, but that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. That's the, you know, that, that just makes, makes me feel good about, you know, how much progress you made. That's amazing. But, um, Dave, to your point. So just, you know, if we're talking kind of like business level, or at least, uh, from the clinical level where I kind of see this being positioned at is really, and, and we've had lots of conversations, you know, I've had lots of conversations with, with David and, and his team about like where this technology kind of fits into here in healthcare, I think as a, more broadly, um, as a clinician, honestly, where a lot of this to me came in is, is, I mean, every single day I'm seeing patients that, that run the gamut of, you know, mild to profound hearing loss. And what you very frequently see and Jackie, you know, having worked clinically, I mean, you're going to encounter patients when they're in that moderate and, and, and more severe ter territory that they're going to have safety concerns. So to me, um, I, I don't infrequently hear patients saying like, well, I don't take my hearing aids off at night because I'm worried I'm not going to hear my alarm or I'm worried I'm not going to hear the door. And, and I mean, this is just an, a really awesome complement to existing technology. So it doesn't have to take the place of a cochlear implant or a hearing aid. Um, but I, I really see this as if somebody has moderate hearing loss or, or, or worse, they could really benefit from this just, uh, you know, um, just from even a safety standpoint, but, but then again, the more significant the hearing loss, the more, speech benefit. But so to me, just as a clinician, if, if anybody is telling me they're concerned about like that, they're not hearing things at home, um, you know, and then they're worried about safety. I mean, I'm always going to recommend, uh, the buzz because it, it, you don't know, you, you can use a, uh, we didn't even talk about, it, but you can use a smartphone app and you can customize the frequency response for my audiology nerds out there that, that would be interested in that. But I mean, you can adjust frequency response, you can adjust intensity, but you can still do that on the wrist in terms of the intensity levels. And there's different things you can do with or without the app. Um, but, but, you know, um, David mentioned earlier about this being a fraction of the cost of a hearing aid or a fraction of the cost of a cochlear implant. I mean, not only in patients I see on a regular basis, but I mean, th this type of technology really is needed, not just in the U.S., not just in Western Europe and the, you know, uh, countries, but the third world really could benefit from something like this. People that don't have access to um, this kind of tech. I mean, I, I really think that technologies like this, you know, not only they have speech discrimination benefits, but the safety issues um, that, that often don't really get a lot of airtime. Um, we don't talk about it a lot, really, in, 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 the, in the literature very frequently. I mean, it's kind of always a side a side conversation of, oh, maybe you need a, like a, a loud alarm to wake you up or something like that. But I mean, I've had people tell me that have used the buzz to say like, I don't have to, I don't have to pack my giant alarm clock in my bag. That's going to wake <laughs> me up and vibrate when I go on a trip. Yeah. So it, it, you could just have this little, you know, this little Fitbit size device and, and it's super easy and they can set it up on their phone. I mean, there, there's just, there's just a number of applications and, and really um, the really intriguing part to me was like, wow, I could really see, you know, how this could really complement people that wear cochlear implants and that have, you know, superpower instruments. I mean, really everybody that has a cochlear implant, I think in my personal professional opinion could benefit from this. I mean, if, if you have a CI or you have, uh, you know, superpower hearing aids, I mean, this is a great device that could complement even just daily use with your hearing aids. You know, it's not just 
in spite of your hearing aids, with the hearing aids as well, because it can give you, you know, you think of people with Meniere's disease, you think of people that have these really significant word discrimination problems. I mean, they could benefit from this because they benefit from every extra little bit of context. And if I can give somebody 5, 10, 15, 20% improvement on their speech to scrim and their discrim is very low as is, I mean, that's a big deal. As a, as a clinician, to me, anything I can do to improve somebody's word discrimination, I, I'm, I'm going to recommend. So I, I think even just, again, from a business standpoint, I just see this being a great compliment to, for anybody that has moderate to severe to profound loss. I mean, you know, um, I mean, sure, like people that are musicians and stuff or people that really like to integrate different technologies and want to have different sensory experiences could might really be into this too. But just from a uh, clinician standpoint, I really see that kind of moderate to severe to profound uh, cases is where people are really going to uh, probably see that this to be a really good fit. This is one of the first pieces of feedback we started getting is from people who already had cochlear implants, for example. The, one person described this as three-dimensional hearing by which mm -hmm. she simply meant she was hearing something through her cochlear implant she was feeling vibratory information on the buzz and she was reading lips and together this really sharpened the probability distribution and she was able to really get what was being said. And I talked with Kevin about this and he started calling this trimodal hearing. And that's, uh, that's a, a thing we've heard many times as, as feedback. I love that. Um, what I was going to throw in on what Kevin was saying is, you know, last, this last year has been, very challenging in our profession. It's been challenging for a lot of people. And I think that what we're seeing is we're coming back full circle. You know, we are now looking at all the ways, not only that we can fit hearing aids and cochlear implants, but oral rehabilitation. How do we, how do we help our patients communicate? Because in the end, that's really what we want to do. And so I see this after my experience with watching Jade and her immediate you know, because just because you have on cochlear implants and just because you have on hearing aids, you still miss a lot you, unless, you know, you're, you still, you still miss a lot. So I see this as in addition to, okay, so you have your, your hearing aids and they're fine tuned in your cochlear implants. So what is it we always try and tell our patients to do? Get that person's attention first before you start talking, right? So David, David, they're going to feel it. They're going to hear it. They're going to turn right away. And so then you can engage in conversation. So I, I just think, I think it's going to become an invaluable tool for us as clinicians to, um, and had I honestly, had I not seen this firsthand, um, I don't know that I would have believed it so much, but it's been incredible really to watch my own daughter's speech and language increase, but more importantly, her ability to know someone's talking to her right away. The dogs, if they're barking, she hears them all the way upstairs. She didn't hear that before. She's not hearing it. It's her trimodal, you know, um, input. And she'll go running down the stairs. And my husband said the other day, he goes, how'd she hear that? I'm like, well, I think it was a combination of things. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I think that what's, uh, what's fascinating is I love that, that trimodal, uh, standpoint. And, um, you know, again, this comes back to this notion of, uh, if, if your nose and your ears and your taste and your touch, you know, these are just inputs, right, David? I mean, it's, uh, it, I, I feel like one of the big takeaways I have for your book, the big thing that I'm really walking away from this is like it, your brain doesn't really care how it gets those 
different inputs. At the end of the day, it's just data. And, and that's a really profound sort of insight for me is to say that, yes, the way that humans typically receive sound is through our ears. But in reality, there's no reason why your brain can't interpret the world around it through our skin, you know, so, so long as you have a means in which you can communicate that same thing. We see it in nature, different animals use different sensors in order to capture that. And so that for me has just been so interesting to think about. And, and again, in the year 2021, it's now feasible. That's another thing that I really took away from everything was, you know, it's kind of like you, you were drawn on all these examples from the fifties and the sixties, right. Where a lot of the limitation was like, you have these gigantic helmets that people are wearing and things like that, where the technology just hadn't really caught up. And I think that what's so exciting is that here we are and you can pack in a new sensor that you can communicate the, uh, an entire sense more or less um, to your brain through a 400 or less dollar Fitbit more or less. That's yeah, that's exactly right. Um, people who are doing this, even in the seventies, typically people were doing it for blindness. This has always been a very thin thread in neuroscience about sensory substitution, but it actually reaches back to the 1890s. And, um, and I actually didn't know that when I first started and many of the, you know, concepts that I was coming up with, I thought were completely original, but then I found this paper from 1890 where a guy <laughs> was working on this. He set up a little uh, photo diode on someone's head on a blind person's head and turned that into sound in the ears. And, you know, it kind of worked, but, but exactly as you said, the technology was so terrible. And uh, by the seventies, you know, people were doing stuff, but they had to carry around essentially a computer on their belt with them all the time. And so, yeah, we've just now hit this point where we've got this really sleek, just the fact that we were able to build it as a wristband with nothing else. I mean, often when we're first showing this to people, and this also plugs into what Jackie just said about how she wouldn't have even believed it until she saw it. And, you know, a lot of people I've noticed don't even quite understand what it means or what it is. Because just as one example, sometimes we put this on somebody's wrist and what they'll do is they'll put their wrist up to their ear and they'll say, oh, am I supposed to be doing it this way? And I'll say, no, 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 you just, you just walk around with it. It's coming in through your skin. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, because I think that, but that, that does speak to maybe the novelty of it. And I think that that is, you know, it's obviously such a foreign concept because we all have the natural inclination to say that, well, if I'm deaf, therefore I need to somehow stimulate the, you know, the, the inner ear or something like that. And so I just think that it's, it's such a different approach than what we've ever really seen before in this industry. And, and other than maybe the tactile hearing aids that used to exist, or, you know, I guess in a way this is kind of like that, but it's, again, I, I think that it's really refreshing to have this neuroscience approach coming in where it's just coming at a different angle than I think it's ever really been addressed before. So far as I've seen. That's right. You know what it is? We're right at this intersection. And, you know, I'm happy to live in Silicon Valley, especially because we're right at this intersection between neuroscience and technology. And we're actually doing several other things with the same hardware. Um, one of the things that we are finalizing right now and will release as a product in the near future is something for high frequency hearing loss in particular. So it's when people just aren't hearing the higher frequencies. And what happens is, of course, you guys know, is it makes it hard to understand conversation because particular phonemes, particular parts of speech are just getting mixed or muddled and um, you can't quite discriminate them. And so 
What we're doing is a completely different algorithm where instead of capturing all sound, we're just listening in real time for T's, S's, F's, V's, B's, uh, these high frequency phonemes, and, and then just signaling when that's happening. We have different signals on the skin and people can pretty quickly learn within a few days, get really good at understanding what is the phoneme being said. So I patented this and I call it cross-sensory boosting where your ear is doing most of the work, all the low and middle frequency stuff, and your wrist is just taking care of the high frequency stuff and just clarifying for you, oh, that was a T, that was an S, that was a V. And so we've been running tests on that and that's that's been very cool. And we're also doing a different thing also, uh, which is something that Kevin got us started on, uh, pointed me to some literature and we started doing some testing with um, tinnitus. So it turns out that there are some papers out of Europe and out of Michigan showing that um, when people have ringing in the ears, if you do stimulation where you're playing tones for them and they're feeling something, um, this can actually relieve some of the symptoms of tinnitus, uh, the loudness and the aversiveness. And so, um, and it's not a hundred percent, but it lowers it. Um, and so, the original papers on this have this thing where they give you a shock on the tongue with electrotactile uh, paddle on the tongue. Um, and they had an argument for why they think this should work because they said it has to do with the dorsal cochlear nucleus. I'll skip the details, but that's where the, that's where the auditory stream first confronts touch from the head and neck. But we decided to try this with touch from the skin, which would have nothing to do with the dorsal cochlear nucleus. Anyway, the point is it works. It works exactly as well as it does with the shocking on the tongue. So we're running some big tests on that now, and we'll be releasing that very soon um, as, a, as a program for managing tinnitus. Yeah, I saw that. And I think that the, what was that, Lanier um, or Lanier? Yep. So uh -huh. yeah, I was reading about that and this idea of like bimodal stimulation and how that might be a, a really good solution. And the other thing I thought about that too is like, it didn't seem quite feasible that people would walk around with like tongue zappers on. And so when you have, again, it's the feasibility of all this, right? And that, that's what I like about your approach is that it speaks beyond just the tinnitus application to the trimodal, you know, um, augmented ability in, in which to hear the sound around you is you're not asking a lot. Like the, the, the onus isn't a whole lot, whether it's the price point or it's the day-to-day -day wear of the device. It's, it's the behavior um, change, I guess, more or less that you're demanding on the user isn't a whole lot. And that's part of why I think this is so compelling too, is that, you know, the, the notion that in order to maybe in, in dramatically, in some cases, um, hear the world around you and, and augment your world, um, all you have to do is wear a Fitbit type device is, isn't asking a whole lot. You know, that's exactly right. I got to tell you, I, I spent my whole career as an academic until I spun off this company five years ago. And I've learned so much. <laughs> uh, and that has been one of them is about really understanding product market fit. And, and I have to say, I run into fellow academics all the time who say, well, wait, you have a, a higher density of touch reception on your fingers. So why don't you build a glove for people to wear instead of a wristband? And you know what? That's a terrible idea. Nobody <laughs> wants to wear a glove. We've actually done research on this. Nobody wants to stick stuff in their mouth to wear on their tongues and so on. Um, so there, there has to be this combination between the 
the, the, the academic knowledge and the product market fit knowledge. I'll just jump in there, Dave. So uh, yeah, David, to your point, I mean, and as an audiologist, um, I'll just say, you know, I'm just using my own, my own example is that it's, it's hard for most of us to think beyond the ears uh, in a sense of like that you really could get that much uh, benefit from a completely different sense, but it's actually improving our ability to hear and decipher sound. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. And most audiologists, when I've actually had the opportunity to really explain how this works, they get it. Uh, once they understand it and it makes sense and it clicks. And then when you have patients, they can use it and they like to Jackie's point, some of the examples she's talking about with her daughter. I mean, it, it just, it, it makes a lot of intuitive sense, but it, on the face of it, you think about, well, this thing's just going to buzz. What's that, you know, this thing's just going to vibrate on my wrist. What's that going to do? But, but when you start realizing the nuances here and, and the fact that, you know, in the case of the buzz that is actually stimulating different points on the wrist and that's responding to corresponding to specific frequencies, then it starts to make a little more sense as an audiologist because we often think in terms of most of us, not all of us, most of us think in terms of like, okay, well, this person has a hearing loss. I can, I can utilize these frequencies to program for that loss to accommodate their hearing issue. And then when I think, okay, well, not only could I get a hearing aid, um, then maybe this person needs a remote microphone because they have signal and noise problems. Well, I think of this, me personally, I think of this like a remote microphone, but it, it's, it's just a different, it's just a different type of assistive device. So I, I like to think of it in those terms because the same kind of people or the same type of patient rather that needs a remote microphone could probably benefit from the buzz, almost certainly could benefit from the buzz. So, you know, so it's, it's, it's just, we got to get out of the box, so to speak, you know, got to get out of the booth. We got to think a little differently. So, um, but anyway, so that, that's just kind of my, my two cents here is that it, I think it's just, we're so familiar with our, um, you know, we're so familiar with what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. It's, it's a little, sometimes it's, it's just, we gotta, we gotta kind of, um, look at it from another, another perspective and, and, to Davis point, it's like, you know, the brain is an amazing thing. I tell patients this every single day. Our brain is such an amazing thing that it is adapting to your hearing loss over time. And that's why when you have hearing aids, all of a sudden you're hearing all these sounds, it sounds so different and maybe they don't like it. Well, hey, the brain just can take a little time. It's going to get used to that new amplification. Same thing with, with a buzz. If we use that same concept, you know, your brain is going to adapt and this is going to be a complement to whatever you're doing right now. So I just think we have to think of it in those terms that it's, it's not, it's not this or that it's, it's a complement to existing tech and, and it's in it not only for safety, but speech to scrim. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty incredible really for, like I said, a, a, you know, a cost-effective uh, device. It's a lot cheaper than a remote mic, put it that way. <laughs> yeah. FM system. Do we expensive. have a, do we have a special guest? We do have a special guest. Jade just got finished with her speech. You want to say hello? Hello. Hello. Hello, Jade. I hear you, Hi, Jade. Uh, you wear the buzz. Do you like it? Do you like the buzz? Do you like the buzz? <laughs> yeah, she does. <laughs> um, one of the things I was going to kind of toss in, you know, I'm finding um, that being a parent versus being a clinician, wow. Um, you know, I really thought I knew a whole lot about hearing loss and I knew nothing, but my husband is a musician. And so, um, he's tried to work with Jade, but you know, it, it, it's like, even with like speech, you know, I don't know if you guys follow any of Dr. Nina Krause's stuff, but, um, you know, music for the brain. So, so he's, he's teaching her the drums. Cause we figured, you know, she can 
bang around on drums. And we're using the watch for timing. My husband is like, you know, let's, and, and it's there. I, I think that if we have some really creative people out there, you're going to find that um, there are many different ways to, to use this thing. And um, sky's yeah. the limit. Just Jade may be a musician. Who knows? <laughs> well, that's actually, that's a perfect way to kind of bring us home here. So uh, I guess kind of as we wrap, David, um, I'm curious, like I've heard you talk about the Umwelt and I've heard you talk about sensory addition and all that. And it's super fascinating. And I'm curious, like, does it feel like you're just kind of scratching the surface here with the buzz and, and, and your work in general? I mean, I think it's really cool that in the short amount of time that I've been familiar with the buzz that you're already looking at it as maybe this is a good solution for tinnitus. And I just learned just now about the whole frequency range um, and, and, and targeting the higher frequencies. Um, but is this, or do you feel as if there's just, you're just kind of scratching the surface? Oh yeah. I mean, the truth is we have 20 projects that are underway in, in the lab, in the R and D section of the lab, because we're doing things for blindness. We're doing things for balance. We're doing things for prosthetic legs. Um, and then we've got things that are far wackier than that. Um, and in fact, we just had our second developer contest at NeoSensory where we asked developers from all over the world to come up with stuff um, we had 196 entries on our last contest and, um, people are doing things about, you know, sensing where there's electrical fields or sensing the, um, the carbon dioxide in the room, which tells you about the room's ventilation, which serves as a proxy for how likely you are to get COVID in that room wow. or, um, picking up on the emotion of, uh, the speaker that you're talking with. And this is for children with autism who, understand the meaning of words, but can't at all read the emotion of the person. Are they angry? Are they happy? Are they being sarcastic? Are they sad? And so the, the wristwatch, the, the, the buzz does, um, you know, those calculations and then buzzes to tell the, the user what the speaker is feeling. And anyway, there's just a million things that we're working on, but they all fall under this umbrella of, hey, what kind of information can we pass to the brain via this channel? via the skin. The skin is like this giant, it's our, it's our largest organism and it's almost entirely untapped, right? The skin exactly. is in. The skin is in. The skin is in. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> well, anyway, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, David, I think for, I speak for the three of us and I speak for the whole industry. We're really happy that you're, you're here and that you're building these really, really cool things. Um, it's just so refreshing to, to see these new approaches. And um, I'm really excited to, to, you know, see where the buzz goes and how it continues to evolve. And, and I think that it's going to be great to, you know, hear from people like Jackie that have uh, a loved one that are, you know, that's actually using it and seeing a lot of value from it and hearing from Kevin about, you know, how is the industry receiving this? And uh, I do think that in time, this is going to become just a, an awesome another tool that uh, professionals can add to their tool bet tool belt and, and help to set themselves apart. So this has been an amazing conversation. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thanks everybody. This has just been a real treat. Thanks for having right, us. Thanks. Yeah, thanks Dave. All right. Awesome. Thank well, you. thanks everybody who tuned in here to the end and we will chat with you next time. Cheers. 
Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Future Ear Radio. For more content like this, just head over to futureear.co where you can read all the articles that I've been writing these past few years on the worlds of voice technology and hearables and how the two are beginning to intersect. Thanks for tuning in and I'll chat with you next time.